and we're live. Thank you for coming back for yet another episode. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. And just a little bit of housekeeping for you, dear listener. Uh, Dragon Award, as we record this uh, this episode, just concluded. Congratulations to everybody that won. And as of with that, Doc will probably take a week or two to recover her voice. She sounds like she swallowed a squirrel and it ripped her vocal cords on the way down. Not very pleasant. Uh, but as soon as she's recovered, she'll be back to uh, regularly host with me. And I look forward to it, as I'm sure you do as well. But now we get to talk to the man of the hour, Mr. David Carrico. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, my name is David Carrico. I've been a science fiction and fantasy fan for a long time, as you can tell by looking at me. And uh, I've been a professional author since 2004 short and sweet you uh i dig it so you're not going to tell us about your long walks on the beach and you know candlelight dinners and such okay no. be professional then <laughs> <laughs> all right so the next part of the introduction dear listener is how we found the uh the author and this one actually came to us through the uh public relations person over at bain mr sean Korsgaard. Uh, i asked him for some names because we had some cancellations and he hooked us up with david and he sat on our panel about uh, paranormal creatures and the rest, as they say, is history. His book sounded intriguing enough during that interview that I knew we had to have him back. And so we set it up and here we are. So thank you for coming back. I'm, I'm glad our insanity did not scare you away. As insanity goes, you guys are cool. <laughs> well, that's good. We aim to please. <laughs> All right. So now the religion question. You didn't have to do this last time because we were on a panel, but, sir, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Trek. I'm oh, old school. Oh, why is that? I'm old school. Okay. Was it Star, Star Trek was the first real science fiction show I remember watching, so it's uh, it's always been. Who was your first captain? Yeah. Was it Kirk or uh, Picard? Kirk. Old school, okay. man. 1960s. Are you are you old enough to remember Captain Pike from season one? Yes. Okay. I've watched some of the old episodes. They aged surprisingly well. So yeah. because we are poly because we are polytheistic, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or Wheel of Time? Lord of the Rings. I'm a told. I mean it is it is the uh it is the, the creator of all that followed, or at least the inspiration. Yeah. Um, we truly stood on the shoulders of giants with that one. Yep. So what was your first love, though? Was it sci-fi or fantasy? I'd have to say science fiction. That's what actually sucked me into the multiverse and got me, uh, got me hooked on, on uh, the genre, so to speak. So what was your first memory of engaging in science fiction, then? Um, ordering Andre Norton's book, Cat's Eye, from the Scholastic Book Club when I was in sixth grade. That was the first real science fiction that I ever read. And for the next few years, I haunted the libraries and read everything by her that I could find, and then also by, by Heinlein. So that, that was what got me hooked, and I'm still hooked 
a lot of years later. I still have fond memories of the Scholastic Book Fairs. I wonder if they still do those. That's a good I question. Think, I we'll think have to the, investigate that. I think the book fairs still happen. Uh, I haven't seen one in a while, but I think they still happen. I hope so. That was a formative experience for many people. So what is it about speculative fiction and the umbrella genre and science fiction in which you write and are such a fan? What is it that you love about the genre? Just the sheer scope of uh, mostly the world building, but being able to tell stories uh, that involve very different creatures and being able to tell stories in very different locations has always been part of what pulled me in and part of what I still enjoy today. Okay. How did your love of speculative fiction transition from just being uber fan to I'm going to write my stories in this space? Like, how did that happen for you? I'm not, I was not one of those kids that knew in fourth grade or sixth grade or eighth grade that I was going to be a writer. In fact, uh, I, I adored good writing and I tremendously respected good writers like Norton and Heinlein, but I never thought I could be one. In fact, I was, I was absolutely convinced that whatever spark it took to be a writer, God didn't give it to me. And it wasn't until, I guess I was probably about 26, that I finally started uh, uh, down the road uh, of, of writing. And uh, that's actually a long story. I don't know if you want to get into it or not, but yeah, it, it sure. took me. We got time. Okay. Um, in the 70s, this would have been around 1978, I was living in Oklahoma City, and at that time, C.J. Cherry, the very well-known author, was just beginning her career, and she lived in Oklahoma City. Uh, we lived not too far apart from each other, but we, you know, we weren't any kind of friend. In fact, we were barely casual acquaintances, but we both happened to haunt the same little strip center bookstore in Oklahoma City. This is before Barnes & Noble and before Books A Million, before all the big mega stores were out. Uh, and so there were, there were little strips, store, bookstores and strip centers all over town. Anyway, we walked into the store together, more or less together one day, and we had one of those casual conversations. Hi, how are you? What's going on? What are you reading? What are you working on now? Kind of thing. And she asked me what I had read most recently, and it happened to be a really bad novel that of all companies, Daw had put out. Daw very seldom puts out a dud, but this one, this is like 1978. This one was a dud. And I looked at, you know, I told her about it. I pointed to it on the bookshelf. And then in my hubris and arrogance, I told her this thing is so bad, I could write better than that. And that, you know, remember, I don't think I'm a writer. To my mind, that was the ultimate condemnation of this book, that I, who was not a writer, could write better than that. <laughs> and she was very gracious and didn't 
tear me a new one and just looked at me. And after a few seconds, she said, do it. And that was a moment of epiphany for me that, uh, oh, my God, here's a, a potential Hugo winning author standing in front of me telling me I might be able to write. And that uh, that was literally the moment where my career began. It wasn't her book that you were criticizing, was it? Oh, no. <laughs> that would no. be awkward. God, no. I have every book she's <laughs> ever published, uh, everything in hardback that I could find. Uh, I think she's one of, one of the greatest living authors today and probably the greatest living author when it comes to creating aliens. So uh, I, was, uh, I was gobsmacked when she told me that. And I, you know, I took it seriously after that. It, now it, it took me a long time to learn the craft well enough to start to sell because I didn't make my first professional sales until 2004. We had this conversation in 1978, but that was the moment. That's a lot of practice. That was the moment where I said, okay, I'm going to try. And, you know, the, they say that your first million words are for practice. I probably got close to a million words before I made my first sale. So what was your favorite book by her? Um, I would have to say, um, I'd have to go with, uh, probably her very first one, Gate of Ivrel, because that just, that, she hooked me from the first page with that book. And I can't tell you how many times I've reread that. Uh, I think of her series, I think her Foreigner series is far and away her best work. But of her individual books, my favorite is Gate of Viverell. Okay, that's a ringing endorsement. You know what? I wrote that down. I'll see if we can't get her on the show, too, to talk nerdy with us. So, all righty. The many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. Were there any specific formidable moments you think that shape you as a storyteller? Not particularly. I, uh, you know, I didn't have um, my dad was career Air Force, so I moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, I was the typical uh, nerdy geek in school because I got started in school a year early. So we moved a lot. I was a year younger than all the kids in my class. And because I was a year younger, I was usually not only the new kid in class, I was usually the littlest kid in class. So I was textbook nerdy geek from way back. And other than having an affinity for writing characters like that, <laughs> I can't say that uh, much of what I experienced growing up actually translated into stories that uh, made it to the page. Okay. So transitioning from the writing side, let's talk about things from the fan angle. Have you gotten any cool fan art or had anyone cosplay your stuff yet? Not yet. I would dearly love to see some fan art of, uh, of my new book, though. I think it would lend itself to that kind of thing. I'd really like to see some people try it, but uh, haven't seen anything yet. So if someone wanted wanted to try it and they had, you know, to get you the images, what's the best place for them to send it? Um, 
Probably to my Facebook writer page, David Kirko Fiction. Okay. All right, we'll throw that in the show notes. So if you if you decide this inspires you, dear listener, uh, we will send those links down below. Uh, put them in the show notes, and you can check it out. So has anyone asked for your autograph yet? Yeah, uh, that happened probably two or three years after I started publishing. Uh, enjoyable experience, definitely was a, a a bit of an ego boost. Do you remember what it was like the very first time someone asked you? If, uh, first of all, you know, my immediate reaction was, is he serious? Because I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> and, and then when I realized he was serious and he was holding a copy of one of my books in his hand, I kind of went, wow. And they you know, started feeling kind of like floating on a cloud, but uh, went ahead and signed it and thanked him very much for uh, approaching me. Was, was that was uh, cool. when you first started writing or was that when you first started or did that happen later into your career? That probably was around 2006 or 2007. It would have been about the time that Eric Flint started his uh, Ring of Fire uh, conventions that he uh, would partner with existing conventions and bring a a crowd of Ring of Fire fans to uh, other conventions. So nice. probably about so you, were, you were in on the ground floor. Fairly right. early. So what is your, yeah. So what is your weirdest or funniest interaction with fans and readers since you started writing? <laughs> um, <laughs> probably the one that uh, sticks out in my mind the most uh, 2015, I think it was, Eric asked Liberty Con to host the uh, 1632 uh, convention that year. And we had a large group signing because there were a bunch of the uh, Ring of Fire authors there. And Uncle Timmy Bolgio, the, uh, the grand master behind uh, Liberty Con at that time, was Watching him was like watching a kid in a candy shop because he was just grinning from ear to ear and he was walking from writer to writer and he, including me, and he, instead of handing us a book, he would hand us a white sticky label for us to sign and then he would take that home and put it in the book. He said that for him, that was a whole lot easier than, try, you know, trying to drag uh, 150 books around, <laughs> which I totally get. That's, but uh, just watching that's him, kind of genius. Yeah, watching him have that kind of, of enthusiasm and that kind of enjoyment was an enjoyment in itself. Uh, it was kind of funny, but it was also, you know, just pretty cool to watch from that standpoint. It was it was good to be a part of that. So um, this is the part. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I'm glad I had that opportunity because uh, he died a few years later, and I didn't make it back to Liberty Con before he died. So that was really the only chance I had to meet the man and have any contact with him, and I was glad I got it. Well, uh, whenever they die, it's always too soon. So condolences. Um, so this is the part of the interview where we start talking uh, less about you as a nerd and more about you as a creative. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? 
Okay, to date I have had uh, 16 with the newest book, uh, The Blood is the Life. I've had 16 books published. Uh, they break down into alternate history, epic fantasy, space opera, and now with the latest book, um, Urban Fantasy. Half of the books uh, from two publishers are uh, laid in Eric Flint's 1632 universe. That's the alternate fan, uh, history books. Uh, the space opera was uh, laid in Eric's uh, Chao Empire series. I got to pick up and help finish writing uh, The Span of Empire after Katie Wentworth, his original co-author, died. And uh, let's see, the rest, the, the epic fantasies, there's six of those. And then the latest one is the urban fantasy from Bane. Okay. Well, all those sound fascinating. Today, we're going to talk about The Blood is the Life, which is your newest novel. So where did you get the premise for this story? How'd you come up with the idea? <laughs> okay, here's another unusual story. Um, the origin of the story goes back quite a ways. It was actually late 2009. I had just finished writing a, a what I thought was a significant writing project, and I was uh, sitting in my office one night, brainstorming, trying to figure out what the next thing was that I was going to I was going to tackle. And like every writer I know, uh, I read a lot. I read a lot of different stuff, and consequently, my head is packed full of data, uh, odd information, odd facts, weird facts, and that all starts bubbling to the top when I'm trying to brainstorm. And in the middle of this brainstorming session, my mind gives me, of all things, a verse out of the Bible. In the book of Leviticus, I believe the 17th chapter, there is a verse that paraphrases something like this. You shall not eat blood, for the blood is the life and is sacred to the Lord. Now, I'm not an expert on anything involving Jewish society, culture, religion, history. I respect it, but I'm, I don't claim to be any kind of expert on any of that. But I do know enough to know that that particular verse is the cornerstone of what they call the kosher laws. The, the rules, the religious rules that govern how meat is to be slaughtered and food is to be prepared. And it's really a big deal in Jewish society, particularly for the Orthodox Jews. So right after that verse crossed my mind, my mind followed it up with this thought, wow, that would be a problem for a Jewish vampire. And that was followed by a picture of an, of an Orthodox Jewish man having an existential crisis because he wants to obey the laws. He, he lives to obey the religious laws, but now he can't even exist if he doesn't consume blood, which will break one of the major laws. And that was the beginning of the story in The Blood is the Life. And actually that tension, that existential crisis, drives most of the tension in the novel. 
That is right up there with the old joke you hear about turning a vegan into a vampire so they have to eat the flesh as a yeah. sort of twisted vegan joke. But I, I mean, the premise is right there with what you're what you're doing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, before we dive too deeply into the book, we are going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. So please bear with us for this commercial interlude. The war between Al Masia and the Empire of Colacolvia is in its hundredth year. Casualties grow on both sides as the conflict leaves no corner of the world untouched. Alarian Glaskov's quiet life on the fringes of the Empire is thrown into chaos when an impossible tragedy strikes his village. When he is conscripted into the Tsarist military, he is sent to serve in The Wall, an elite regiment that pilots suits of armors made from the husks of dead goblins. The Great War is not the only, or even the worst, danger facing Alarian as he is caught in a millennia-old conflict between two goddesses. He must survive the ravages of trench warfare, horrific monsters from another world, and the treacherous internal politics of the country he serves. Servants of War, New Military Fantasy, by Master of Horror Steve Diamond and international bestseller Larry Correa. Available on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Pick up your copy today. The commercial was amazing. Thank you, Bane, for uh, sponsoring it, but your narrator mispronounced your company name. <laughs> um, all right, so now that we're back, we're going to jump into the fun part where we take a moment and we look at that glorious cover. So how did this art come to be? What is the story of the uh, the book cover? Well, Bane, the publisher, Tony Weisskopf, basically serves as her own art director. And Bane frequently commissions covers that do not illustrate specific scenes in the book. This one is a case in point. Uh, this captures the, the feel of the book. This captures the essence of the book. And it's actually set in a location described in the book. If you, if you scroll the picture back up a little bit, uh, the blue line that's kind of across diagonally down the, the center of the page, that's actually, if you could read it, that actually spells out the name Gray Havens, and that's a location in the book. But the scene that's being portrayed with the character is not a scene in the book. So uh, I had no idea what the cover was going to look like. I had no idea who was going to do the cover art. I was just really hoping I would get a great cover, and boy, did I get a great cover. The artist's name is Alan Pollock. Uh, I think he's relatively new, uh, although he's been doing covers for Bane for several years. Uh, if you are a fan of Larry Correa's Monster Hunter series, he does the covers for that series. Uh, I think it's a superb cover, and I'm just really happy I got it. Okay, it's a it is a nice cover. I do like it. It's bright, but it still hints at the darkness. So I thought that was a good um, choice for the image. So hats off to Tony. All right, so let's move on to the book itself. What would your thirty second elevator pitch for this novel be? You wake up one morning and you're super, but then you find out that to be super and in fact to exist at all, you have to regularly and frequently do something that you find morally reprehensible, morally uh, just vile. And 
how does that affect you? How does that affect your self-image? How does that affect your, your worldview? How does that affect how you deal with anything? And how do you feel about being something that if everyone around you knew what you were, they would consider you to be a monster? That's the theme. Okay. That, that's the theme that drove the writing of the first draft of this book. Okay, I like it. So what do you think makes this novel special? Um, two aspects. Number one, I find it very interesting to deal with the conflict between faith and an irrevocable change that takes you in a direction that you, you think is repugnant. I find that very interesting. And secondly, uh, I don't follow all of the, the normal vampire tropes with the story. Um, uh, I, I kind of almost follow Anne Rice in that in this story, vampirism is not supernatural. It's a physical condition, but it's not supernatural, that they're not undead. And I, I take the vampirism in a very different direction. Okay, can you talk about the different direction you took it without spoilers? Um, let's just say that when I started out to write the book, I divided, I went through all the typical vampire tropes. You know, they, they, uh, they turn into bats, they can fly, they, you can't see them in mirrors, they can't stand sunlight. Uh, they, I went through all of those tropes and I divided them into either a mythic category or a plausible category. And the mythic ones are not part of my story. They, the mythic ones get discussed in the story, but they're not part of the, the story elements. The actual plausible elements, though, I went to great lengths to try and figure out why they would be plausible, to come up with at least semi-rational scientific explanations for those characteristics. And I was fortunate enough that I was able to run those by a world-renowned physiologist who pointed out a couple of things I had wrong, pointed out a couple of things uh, I needed to consider that I hadn't considered, and otherwise told me I had it spot on. So, so where did you fall on the... Uh... Go ahead. I was going to say it's almost... It's almost like what Anne Rice did in Interview with the Vampire, where okay. she, made, she made vampirism a medical condition. So it, it's, but in my story, there's no supernatural aspect to it at all. So does that mean if it's a medical condition, there's a cure? We haven't got that far yet. In fact, uh, part one of the, this is a bit of a spoiler but one of the one of the things that happens in the book is they are doing scientific research trying to figure out how vampirism works so that they can then go beyond to figure out why vampirism works okay so where did you fall on the uh, the mirror issue not plausible I actually saw a breakdown of the Tumblr joke post back in the day that said that the reason mirrors didn't show the vampire image was because the silver inside old mirrors 
And so if they're allergic to silver, <laughs> it made sense. But modern mirrors don't use silver. So in modern day mirrors, the vampires would be seen, which I thought was a kind of neat take on it. Um, Cause they did, I mean, silver was used yeah. in the, in the backing. Yeah. So that actually made sense to me if, if you kept the silver part. Yeah. Well, so. Now that one, I dropped that one. I dropped the holy water one. I dropped uh, most of the, the, most of the really out and out weird ones I dropped, but anything I could think of a plausible uh, physical explanation for. Uh, I went with it. Okay. So what tropes do you feel like the blood is the life hits the best? Um, the supernatural strength. I mean, the, the seemingly supernatural strength, uh, the, the speed, uh, the, uh, the hunger for blood is definitely there. Uh, most of the most of the gross physical uh, tropes are still there. Okay. Um, so, what subgenres besides, um, I guess, urban fantasy do you feel like this fits into? Um, How would you categorize this book? It's not supernatural horror. And it's it's not uh, paranormal romance. Uh, I pitched it to Tony as an urban fantasy with a with a Jewish vampire as the main character, and I think that's kind of how it's being uh, presented. Uh, the uh, <laughs> one of the comments that we got from one of the earlier readers, uh, M.A. Rothman, actually said. Uh, said something about uh, uh, you know what's not to like about a about the equalizer being a vampire or something like that. So that's that's kind of the tone of the book. Rothman is one of the guys that we we're trying to get on the show, but man, that guy is crazy busy and hard to pin down. Yeah, uh, he's a, he's a nice yeah. guy though. I like him. Yeah. The so let's talk about the story itself then. So why don't you tell us more about your main character? We know he's Jewish. You said specifically he was Orthodox Jews. Um, his name is Haim Khan. He's 18 when the story begins, and he was raised an Orthodox Jew. Now, when the story begins, he's moved out from home. Uh, he's going to college, and he's not under mom and dad's thumb anymore. So he's his life has strayed a little bit, but he still thinks very Orthodox, and he still reacts very Orthodox. So when uh, when he has the experience that turns him into a vampire, uh, it hits him very hard. This conflict with the religious law really hits him very hard. And the, the story actually begins with him trying to talk to a rabbi about the problem and having this existential meltdown in the middle of the conversation. And the uh, the story, okay. the story basically, the first part of the story deals with him finding out what he is, and then beginning to come to grips with what he's become. 
So what do you think makes him stand out in other um, against other characters in other vampires? The uh, probably the thing that stands out to me the most is that he's a man of faith. He's not skeptical about it. He is a man of faith. And this is striking at the foundations of his beliefs. And how he how he copes with that, how he begins to to deal with that is a is a real struggle. It's a real issue, and that's uh, one of the reasons why I wrote the stories because this is an this is a kind of issue that we don't see addressed in science fiction and fantasy very often. When someone is a person of faith and really believes what they believe, and they're facing with this kind of conflict, how do they deal with it? Okay. So were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable to you? <laughs> there are three major secondary characters in addition to Hype. Uh, there's an older rabbi named Avram Mendel. Uh, there is a younger woman who's a, a few years older than Haim named Yael. And then there is a man named Mordecai Zalman, who we find out along the way is another Jewish vampire who was born somewhere around 1760. So he's about 280 years old. And Mordecai, writing Mordecai was fun, but I think trying to bring the perspective of a 280-year-old vampire into the story, I think enriched the story quite a bit. And he's, he's That would have required a lot of historic research. Uh, some, yeah. Uh, he's, you know, the, we don't go back into the past very, very often, but we do occasionally. He's a very intense okay. fellow so in his own way. So does your story have a bad guy that they have to confront without giving us any spoilers? Bad guys. Bad guys. There's two of them. They're not related to each other. They're not connected with each other. Uh, one of them you can think of as being uh, one of the most evil men that I'm Hein could have met. And one of them is more just your typical nasty street thug. But both of them cause Heim difficulties, both of them cause Heim cause Heim pain, and he ends up having to deal with both of them along the way. Okay. So speaking of characters, if yours met you in a back alley after all the horrific things you've done to them, how do you see that interaction playing out? Well, number one, I would be extremely polite. <laughs> uh, Zalman, I think, would be pretty low-key. I would just say, uh, you, know, you know, go and send no more kind of thing. Uh, Heim might be a little more intense than that, but 
he's basically a good guy. I think he would probably, as long as I didn't do anything else stupid, I think he would probably uh, let me go. But it, uh, the discussion, I'm sure, would be pretty intense. Okay, that's that's fair. Um, so what about the universe? In many stories, the world where the um, adventure takes place are as much a character as the protagonist or antagonist. So what can we expect from this alternate reality you've created? The setting for the story is basically our world, maybe a year or two farther on. Uh, it's, uh, it's very, very similar. No... No real changes in terms of everything that's happened. Uh, in fact, there's fairly frequent references to the COVID year. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly current and fairly up-to-date in terms of the world we live in. Uh, no horrendous changes, at least not in this story. Okay. Uh, well, you know, whenever you add extra stuff to the element or to the universe, you never know what knock-on effects that would have and what that would change. Um, since if vampires have been around for a while, there's all kinds of potential secret histories we don't know about that could change the course of events. Potential, but uh, you have to read the story to figure out just how much of a problem that could be. <laughs> so if um, nope. there are vampires in this Go ahead. I was going to say, no hints. <laughs> okay. If there are vampires in this world, are there other creatures as well? Or would that be a spoiler as well? Um, I'm not an outlining writer, so I don't work. I tend to not work a, gr a great deal of detail out ahead of time. I'm very much a discovery writer. Uh, uh, I have to have a little bit of information to, to write the story, but everything else I discover as I write the story. So as of the moment, other than vampires, there's not anything that's been mentioned. Uh, and as of the moment, other than non-supernatural vampires, there's nothing that has been mentioned that uh, could be a supernatural aspect. Now, does that mean there there could be? Yes, it means there could be. But it also means I haven't written it yet, so we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so the blood of the life right now, the blood is the life, excuse me, right now is, is a standalone, but is it going to become part of a series or what? Is there more coming? The story is complete as it is. I mean, I told the story I wanted to tell. There is no part of the story arc that I didn't write. Having said that, I left some loose ends. So although it's not intentionally planned at the moment, the potential exists that there could be at least one more book that could follow this one. Whether that happens or not is probably going to depend on Tony Weisskopf and how well the book sells. I would really like to have a conversation with Tony in about two months where she calls me up and says, well, how soon can you give me the sequel? But for her to want to make that phone call 
it's going to require people to buy the book and read it and review it and say good things about it. So all of you out there who read it and like it, please put reviews out there so other people will buy it. Okay, so every literary universe has its own internally consistent rules of science and technology. So what can we expect from these books? Because it's set in a timeline that is essentially our own in terms of technology, probably not much different than, than we have now. Uh, at this point, uh, I mean, the, the heroes are walking around carrying Glock 40s, which is a top-of-the-line Glock pistol that is available today. So that's, that's, that's kind of the benchmark. What we have today is what they have at the moment. Now, if I, if I get to write additional stories, that might change, but I'm not anticipating it changing drastically because the, the, the difference in the strangeness in this story is not going to be the technology. It's going to be the people. Welcome back. All right. Sorry about that interruption. Dear listener, I had to pause and edit out some uh, barking dogs. Elvis says hi. Um, we talked about the tech being set in the modern world uh, as what we're used to now. If you could, since you couldn't, you know, the tech is the same. That doesn't really apply the question normally we ask. So instead, if you could be a vampire as you created it in your world, would you take that? Personally, no. But I, I can what see is it what... about it. I can see where some people would because uh, they're going to have extended lifetime. They're going to be strong. They're going to be, uh, you know, by, by normal human standards, they're going to be incredibly healthy and strong and fast and uh, all of that kind of stuff. I can see where people would see some advantages. But uh, for me at this point in my life, no. Okay. So how did you go about, you've talked a little bit about, you know, you looked at some of the classic tropes of vampirism. So can we talk a little bit more about how you created your version of the vampire? Was there any specific research or did you just sort of scattergun all of the different tropes you could find and then start narrowing it down? Well, the process was, was basically what I described earlier. Once I weeded out all of the mythical tropes, and boiled it down to a list of things that I thought could be plausible, then I had to sit down and figure out why was it plausible? But what was the physical explanation within the physiology of the body that could, uh, that could produce uh, a superhuman being infected with uh, modern this modern vampirism how how would that work how would that how would that physiology work and you know there there's aspects for the liver there's aspects for the pancreas uh, the eyes get a lot of attention uh, the why why they're so incredibly strong gets explained uh, and it, it all it all hinges on the consumption of blood so it it all it's all at least on the surface scientifically plausible but it all hinges on 
they can they have to consume blood and they can really only consume blood with a couple of emergency exceptions and it, uh, it trust me it uh, according to dr rob this is plausible <laughs> so do you cover that it has to be human blood or will any blood do yeah it has to be human and, and you give it, a reason for that in the book if readers uh, care to dig in? Uh-huh. Now, I, I don't dwell on that. I mean, it, the, the, there's not massive, extensive scientific uh, info dumps. There's enough explanation that Heim begins to understand what's happening to him. But we don't get into the, the scientific, super picky details about molecules and, and stuff like that. It's it's just it's very high level summary discussion. Here's what's happening to your body, and here's why you're changing because these things are happening. But yeah, it's it's in the book, and uh, I tried to make it do it in small enough dumps that it doesn't break the the flow of the story up much. Okay, so. You've obviously written outside of this um, story universe. So take this one more broadly about all of your writing. So when you go about creating magical creatures and aliens in your fiction, how do you generally do that as a creative? Do you let nature inspire you? Are you you know motivated by nightmares or, or you make stuff off out of whole cloth? What's your normal process when you're creating these? Um... <coughs> Well, the only other book where I've done extensive writing about non-humans is uh, the space opera, The Span of Empire. And when Eric and uh, Katie Wentworth created the unit, Eric created the universe and then Katie Wentworth co-authored the first two books with him. And there's a race of aliens in that uh, universe that, uh, they're called the Eckhart, and they are they are the bad guys, in every sense of the word. They're described as being uh, almost giraffe sized. They're be they're described as being very much like praying mantises in terms of their the structure and design of their bodies. And they are consistently described in the first two books as being unsane. And huh. this, this is not insane, unsane. And this, this, is, uh, this becomes a factor in the book that I wrote because uh, to make, they're not explained well in the first two books. Uh, Katie did most of the alien descriptions in the first two books, and she focused on the nice guy alien. She didn't explain much about the Eckhart. And for the story that Eric had outlined for the third book, I had to deal with the Eckhart. I had to make the, the Eckhart more well-rounded characters. So I had to figure out how can an interstellar race that appears to be homicidal maniacs uh, executing each other and all of their subservient uh, workers at, you know, at the flick of an eyelash, 
how can a race like that sustain an interstellar civilization? And that's what I, I, I had to, and this is almost nightmare territory. Uh, I had to consider uh, how a race like that would reproduce, how they would, how they would, what kind of eugenics would they practice with the, themselves? What kind of uh, of uh, uh, genetic uh, changes would they practice on themselves? What kind of culture would they have? You know, how militaristic would they be to allow uh, commanding officers to just simply will, willfully execute members of the crew on the bridge of the ship? I mean, th this was all stuff I had to work with and, and put together, and it it was quite a challenge. And writing writing sections of that book from the aliens' point of view was mind stretching, and and not in a good way. <laughs> I I was not hap really happy with life during the time when those people were living in my head. And I was really glad to get that part of the book done. <laughs> but yeah, it's what you do to make them strange kind of depends on the story you're going to tell. And if it's a series, it kind of depends on what's already been written about. Them. It's, That's uh, fair. And you came at that series uh, in midstream. Yeah. So well, I appreciate that breakdown. It's always interesting to see how creatives uh, go about doing that. So, you know, as this interview is winding down, um, was there anything that we didn't ask that you wanted to tell us about the blood is life? Um, toward the end of writing the first draft, I've already described the theme that was driving the writing in writing the first draft. But toward the end of writing the first draft, I, I had to stop and read back, <coughs> read back through what I had written because I needed to, to remember how I had handled a particular story element early on. And I surprised myself by coming to the realization that uh, I had written a coming-of-age story. That wasn't part okay. of my original. It wasn't part of my original intent, but when I when I chose the the Heim Khan, when I chose him to be eighteen at the beginning of the story, I guess I almost set myself up for it. But I was really quite surprised to realize that this is actually a uh, it's an old school coming of age story. It's not about sex. It's not about an angst ridden teenager dealing with a dysfunctional family and or a dysfunctional society. It's about what happens when a young man has irrevocable changes made to him and how he comes to grips with them. So that was one thing that, uh, that I think people will find some value in. Uh, and that definitely surprised me in the course of writing. Yeah, like I said, I'm a discovery writer. And the other thing is that there's a there's a third theme in the book that deals with the question of justice. 
there there are several conversations in the course of this book as Haim deals with what's happened to him and then begins to deal with issues affecting him and others around him. You know, what is justice? Is justice an absolute? Is it a relative? Is it something that can only be defined and imposed by society? Or can we make our own justice as individuals? Uh, those kind of questions float throughout the whole book. And I hope those are things that will cause people to stop and think a little bit along the way. Okay. So because we mentioned that you, you've mentioned that you're not Jewish, but you wrote a, a heavily Jewish character, which is more than Jewish is extremely Orthodox. So they're going to be deep in the faith. What steps did you take to get those facts right? I mean, I think sometimes we can take sensitivity too far, but obviously you want to honor the root culture. So how did you go about covering that? It was important to me. You know, I, I greatly respect Jewish history, Jewish society, Jewish culture, and Jewish faith, Jewish religion. I respect all of that. And it was important to me because of that respect that we do it right that I get it right in the story. And I actually, when I, when I got to the place where I was ready to start writing, I actually stopped for a couple of days and thought about whether I should write it. Not because I was worried about some Twitter feed accusing me of cultural appropriation, but because I wanted to reflect my respect and I wanted to get the story as right as I possibly could. And I ultimately decided to carry through with it because although I am not Jewish, I am a man of faith. And my faith, because of that, because of my faith, I felt I could understand the impact of this change on Heim's faith. And I felt I was able to write the story from that point of view because of that. Once I finished it, I contacted Jewish friends and asked, you know, asked them to read it. And then when I submitted it to Tony, she had some additional Jewish contacts that she had read the book. And there were suggestions made and there were changes made and, and re revisions made to the story to try and make it as authentic as, po as possible for the kind of story that it is. It does not heavily dwell on Jewish doctrine or Jewish ritual practice, it, but it does deal with how Jews would, would feel about these kind of issues. And uh, by the time we got it, sent it off to the printer. I think there have been a total of at least seven different Jews, uh, you know, some of them Jewish authors, who had read the manuscript enough to understand what, what was being attempted and to give us feedback on how well it worked. It, I took this very, okay. very seriously. Okay, so uh, the other question we like to ask is, what age range would you say this story is suitable for? You mentioned coming of age, so how old would someone have to be for this to be an appropriate story for them? Um, 
there's no gratuity. In fact, there's no real sex in the story at all. So from that standpoint, it's fine. There's very little vulgar language in the book. There's a little bit, not much. So basically, I would think the average 13 or 14-year-old could probably read it. I would think a precocious 10-year-old could read it. And uh, I, I don't think, uh, you know, most parents shouldn't feel any any concern about allowing, you know, if a child wants to read it, uh, you know, a, a, particularly a teenager, I think they would be, uh, would be fine to go with it. Okay. Well, this is the part of the interview. Dear listener, we'll remind you that writing is a two-way street. We write them, you read them. And part of reading them and helping spread the good word to get more of the books you like is to share your thoughts in the form of reviews. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books, and they really do make a difference. So uh, we would greatly appreciate it if you reviewed it. Where all fine books are sold. This was published through Bain Books, so you can get it at Barnes & Noble, um, and all the other bookstores that I probably have forgotten their names, Books A Million, if those are still a thing. Um, and of course, you can get it on Amazon. But um, all right. So David, as we bring this to a close, can you tell listeners how they can find you on social media? Um, I'm on Facebook. My author page on Facebook is David Carrico Fiction. Uh, I have a website, davidcaricofiction.com. Um, other than that, uh, I think... Uh, if nothing else, you can contact Bain and they can get a hold of me. And they do have a, and it's linked in the show notes, they do have a, a space on their platform for your bio and your books listed. So, all right, dear listener, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, Blasters and Blades Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades Podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades Podcast. You can find our website at anchor.fm backslash Blasters Tech and Tech Blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash Blasters dash and dash Blades. We are working on putting together a proper website. We've bought the domain name. Well, Doc kindly bought it for us. Uh, and as soon as she recovers from Dragon Con, she will um, be arranging that. Uh, so if you wanted to help support that effort, you can support it over at Buy Me a, or anchor.fm blasters dash and dash blades for as little as 99 cents a month or you can support it more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr handley again buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr handley be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast normally i would make jokes about you know supporting our coffee booze or book addiction but this time i'll, I'll you know bluntly say it does help keep the overhead there are some expenses behind operating a podcast like this and so every little bit that you do helps, and we greatly appreciate it. Honestly, from the bottom of our cold, dead hearts, we do. But uh, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Handley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time, where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. Again, David, thank you for coming back. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right. You you guys up. Uh